I'm Christopher Leiden, and this is Open Source. With the historian John Judas, we are looking for a longer timeline in the crisis of Gaza, Israel, Palestine. It has been, in fact, a century of layered conflict between Arabs and Jews, two peoples in stop-and-go warfare over a small plot of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. What if, as in James Joyce's most famous line, what if that hundred years of history is itself the nightmare from which we are all trying to awake? Can we break the nightmare war cycle by relearning the history, by taking it again, by doing it over? John Judas, do you believe in solving problems by pulling up their roots for a fresh look at them? Uh, well, you either uh, solve problems that way you find out that they're insoluble one way or the other. I've been submerged in the historical study you wrote and published in 2014. We should have read it then. You called it Genesis, Harry Truman, American Jews, and the origins of the Arab-Israeli conflict. On the present course of events toward the horror show of October-November this year, you write that by now the Palestine problem is hapless and hopeless. But can you imagine a historian's intervention in the history still unfolding? I can imagine that at various points in that history, which really goes back um, maybe 140 years, not even a century, there were moments, there were times when intervention was possible. I'm pessimistic about the present, to tell you the truth. I'd ask you to start this century or more epic at the end of World War I, roughly where the Lawrence of Arabia movie ended, or maybe with the Balfour Declaration of 1917, remind us, Britain's Foreign Minister Arthur Balfour committed the Brits to finding a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, or perhaps a nation. The word kept changing. But Balfour was also openly working his own imperial strategy to plant an ally in the eastern Mediterranean that could help protect Britain's interest in Egypt and the Suez Canal, among other things. How do we square that? I want to start a little earlier than that. Okay. Because I think the overwhelming fact that you have to understand when you think about the conflict between now called the Palestinians and the Israelis is that in the 1890s, when Zionism really began as a movement of emigration, when Jews started emigrating to Palestine with the idea of setting up colonies there, Jews constituted about 3 or 4% of the population. Of Palestine? Of Palestine, yes, of that region, of the region that became Palestine. The rest were Muslims and some Christians. The Arabs there had lived there for about 1,400 years, so they had considerable lineage. So the framework you have to understand from the Arab standpoint is that beginning in the 1890s, you had these people from Europe coming to Palestine, the Holy Land, in order to set up colonies. For the great many of them, that became setting up eventually a Jewish state. That's what Theodore Herzl in his book, The Jewish State, in 1895, decreed should be the goal of uh, Jewish colonization. So fast forward there to the uh, World War I. By then you have maybe, what, 30,000 Jews in Palestine, about, well, 9 or 10%. Came Weizmann, a crucial character in yes. this story, devises the idea of getting the British 
to sponsor a Jewish homeland within a British protectorate in Palestine. Britain is going to take over Palestine after World War I from the Turks, who've been discredited and defeated in the war. Weizmann and the British Zionists convince the British leadership, partly again, as you mentioned, for their own imperial motives, to sponsor what they insisted was a British homeland, but which Weizmann and the Zionists read as a Jewish state. And there's a long debate for the next 20 years over whether it's a commonwealth, a state, or a homeland. But what that does is, from Weizmann's perspective is, it sets up a situation in which a Jewish state could eventually become part of the British Commonwealth. Because at that point, nobody foresaw the end of uh, the British Empire. (laughs) So that really was the objective. And the Balfour Declaration was a kind of go-ahead moment for Zionism. Uh, Without it, I doubt if you'd have a state of Israel now. Yeah, and the the Balfour definition was a little vague, and of course it kept changing, too, in various white papers through the 30s. Let me just say, the varieties of Zionism, I think, are worth distinguishing and their rivalries even from the beginning, in theory and on the ground in Palestine. Judah Magnus and Vladimir Jabotinsky were both Zionists, but profoundly different characters and visions. Theodore Herzl's mission, as you say, was safety for Jews in the face of violent anti-Semitism in Western Europe. Another man I don't know enough about, Ehad Ham, his mission was spiritual regeneration. I'm fascinated also by the labor Zionists including Ben-Gurion and Aaron David Gordon, who was inventing a nation of laborers and the kibbutz while he was at it. What's to say about those many voices? The uh, really telling contrast is between the labor Zionists and what came to be called the revisionists, both of which have descendants now in uh, Israeli politics. Uh, The labor Zionists were largely social democrats. They were European Jews who had emigrated primarily after 1900, between 1900 and World War I. Interestingly, they didn't want to be seen as colonialists. So their solution to that was to exclude Arab labor from the Histadrut, the Union, and from Jewish farms and factories. Hmm. So in effect, they used the American model of colonization uh, rather than, say, the South African model. Because in the United States, we know the Indians got displaced and killed. They didn't become incorporated as laborers within the system. So they thought they were getting out of being colonists by doing that. Jabotinsky and the revisionists, uh, what the term revisionists originally meant was that the British in the early 1920s decided to separate Palestine from Jordan. The revisionists insisted that they not be separated, that Jordan be part of a future Jewish state. And that's one key thing that distinguished them then. But the other thing was that they had, I think you have to say, a more realistic Hmm. view of what Jews faced in Palestine in trying to set up a state there, which is to say that while Ben-Gurion and the labor Zionists had this idea that they could somehow make an alliance with the Arab and Jewish proletariat, uh, the working class, 
And while Weizmann, who was a kind of centrist, thought that the Jews could buy off the Arabs, that prosperity would bring them on board, Jabotinsky thought that there was a fight going to occur, an inevitable conflict and an armed conflict, Mm. and that what the Jews would have to do would be to create a kind of iron wall between the Jews and the Arabs through armed force. So that was the uh, distinguishing characteristic of revisionism. The geography changes a little in the next hundred years uh, so that it no longer becomes Jordan as part of Israel, but now greater Israel includes for them what's called Judea and Samaria, which are the West Bank, from the river to the sea. That's a slogan, actually, that doesn't originate with Rashida Talib, but with the uh, Likud <laughs> party, which is the successor to the revisionists in its 1977 manifesto. So Likud is really the heir to uh, revisionism. Whereas the Labor Party and parties like Merits, which are on the left, are the heirs of Labor Zionism, and they have an increasingly dwindling role within uh, Israeli politics. Let's come to that. In your book, John, there's a striking pattern emerging through all the debates of the 1930s and 40s, and it's this, that with some notable exceptions, like Judah Magnus, leading figures in state-building Zionism, simply disappeared the Arabs living for generations on the land of Palestine. The line was launched, I forget by whom, that a people without a land had found a land without a people. It was pure fantasy, but it lingers in the air even today, I think, underlying the most incredible spectacle we're looking at of a war between people who each keep saying that the adversary is beneath contempt or it doesn't even exist. Yes, that's right. And certainly doesn't have a claim on the land of Palestine. I mean, I wonder, are there any precedents for this magical blindness on both sides of a long conflict? Well, the, the precedent is that uh, it's characteristic of the, you could call the imperial colonial mindset. The British saw America when they were emigrating yep. in the uh, 16th, 17th century as a kind of desert, desolate, a place that needed people. It recurs. There's a funny story about when Herzl sets up the uh, World Zionist Organization in the late 1890s. And in 1900, they send over two rabbis to Palestine to see who's there. Hmm. And they come back with this report and they say, the bride is beautiful, but unfortunately she's married to another man. (laughs) (laughs) Also, you mentioned Ahad Ham, who'd gone to Palestine in the 1890s. They knew that there was another people there. Jabotinsky did too. But if you look especially at the American Zionists, there's this persistent myth that the place is desolate, that the place is a desert. Even during the Truman years with Clark Clifford, who was a counselor to Harry Truman, you have him describing it as a few nomadic tribes Mm. of Arabs. So it's a persistent idea and it becomes a kind of justification for colonization leading to a state. The question for me is how the minds of so many proven great liberals and Democrats, small d Democrats, among those Zionists, manage the trick of ignoring the very existence of those people. If not transposing them into brutes or inferiors. It's much too close for comfort, by the way, to the ways that North American settlers saw the native Indians. 
Yes, that's right. And in fact, in American literature and thought of the time, you have the consistent theme of calling the Zionists pioneers or pilgrims and comparing the Arabs there to Indians. Brandeis himself uses that comparison in a 1929 uh, speech. So yes, that's a, a pattern, and it's a way, again, at the time of justifying colonization leading to a state where the people themselves uh, who were doing the colonizing are a minority within the state. After World War II, even left-wing uh, publications become the main supporters of this idea. And the Nation magazine talks about a Jewish state bringing westernization to primitive countries. Mm. So it's the theme continues. Now you wouldn't make that kind of argument, but then it was an acceptable way of justifying something that from the standpoint of the Arabs there was absolutely terrible and something to be resisted at all costs. And again, you have to see it from that standpoint. Just as on the other side, you have to see The impetus to believing these things is, uh, again, anti-Semitism within Europe. Russian pogroms in the 19th century, Nazis, you know, viciously anti-Semitic parties in Eastern Europe as well, and then culminating in the Holocaust, which, again, gives a moral impetus and a justification at that point to creating a kind of Jewish haven in uh, the Middle East where the Jews who still felt threatened by anti-Semitism could escape. Was it you, John, who told me about Yasser Arafat's last words? We are not Red Indians. Oh, my Lord. Exactly. It was the last interview that he gave. It was the last words of the last interview. Oh, (laughs) my Lord. The other sort of patronizing thing about the Arabs was sort of second nature, almost a joke as a justification for what the British Empire did all over the world. They would say, well, we're bringing you the language of Shakespeare and Milton, and that will justify just about anything. Trump had this kind of justification, the idea that Jews would create prosperity within this region. That wouldn't just benefit the Arabs there, but it would win them over, and they would accept a kind of minority status, political status within a Jewish state. And you find that in uh, Theodore Herzl, you find that all the way. I mean, Netanyahu had that plan under uh, Trump. He talked about that. Not everybody peddled that line. May I say, I got my introduction to Palestinian issues first from I.F. Stone, the radical, independent, very Jewish journalist, my great hero. He had ventured to Palestine with Polish refugees in 1945. He loved the social freedom that Jews were thriving in, but he also raised a flag about a blind alley the Jews were being led into, he thought, that is, a single Jewish state. He wrote, I understand, too, why the Arabs in Palestine, who are also human beings and who also have historic rights here, are prepared to fight against any subjection to a Jewish state. Yes, that's right. Part of the problem was there was a group of people beginning in the 1920s who had a kind of dissenting view of Zionism, that what Jews should be doing is creating a center of Jewish culture within a binational state. But they had very little support among uh, the Zionist movement. And in the 1940s, Judah Magnus, who was the uh, chancellor and founder of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, 
was a leader of this faction whose main support came from great intellectual celebrities outside of uh, Palestine, Albert Einstein, Hannah Arendt, Martin Buber, who at this point had emigrated to uh, Palestine, but really had almost no support among the Zionists or among the Arabs. Interestingly, the main Arab leaders said that they preferred Ben-Gurion because they thought that within a a unified Arab-Jewish state, they would get taken to the cleaners by the Jews. (laughs) (laughs) So what I have Stone advocated in 1945, or Hannah Arendt, Magnus came to see Truman towards the uh, end of the debate and tried to sway him, but there was just no basis for it politically. Judah Magnus was I have Stone's leader, so to speak, and one of those names that we don't know enough. He was a rabbi, I believe, from San Francisco, a learned man, in on the founding of Hebrew University, and with a very distinct view of what they were doing. It's not what's been done since then. I'm just thinking into the 40s and the founding of the state, we need your small, quick catalog of profiles of these amazing main movers, including Hannah Arendt and Albert Einstein. It's a spectacular cast of characters many in roles that we'd never imagined for them. Start with Harry Truman. He's the key. Yes, well, Truman becomes president when Roosevelt dies in 1945, and he has really no specific knowledge of what's going on in uh, Palestine or even in the Middle East because Roosevelt's kept him in the dark. Uh, But he comes with several preconceptions about what he would and wouldn't support. He was very uh, leery of the idea of a theocracy, mm. both uh, on Jeffersonian grounds of separation of church and state and also of what he knew of uh, history, religious wars. And what he feared was, again, a, a war between the Jews and the Muslims. If there was going to be a state there, it would have to not be defined by any race, creed, or religion. So that was one a key idea that he had. The other was that, like the people in the State Department, he was very nervous about a war between the Jews and the Arabs within the Middle East, which was very important for its oil, among other things, as the Cold War began. So he was very nervous about doing something that might lead to war. And he thought the establishment of a Jewish state there would lead to endless conflict. You know, on both those grounds, you could say that he he had some insight to what would happen in the future. He had established himself as a pro-Zionist in the sense that he he wanted to allow immigration, Jewish immigration, into Palestine. But he drew the line at, at the matter of a state, a religious state. What did he do about it? Well, he tried for the first year and a half to work out with the British a plan for a Jewish uh, Arab federation by national state. They had different schemes. It uh, culminated in something called the Morrison-Grady plan, which was sort of like Switzerland, where you'd have autonomous regions controlled by the Jews and Arabs, but then an overall legislature that would supervise the country with equal representation of Jews and Arabs. That was the scheme. And that's really Truman's model of the way things should be. And he kept at it. It was about July or August of 1946. Mm. He was under incredible pressure from the Zionist lobby, which was very powerful in the United States, from Democrats within his own party. There was an election coming up, 
And at a big meeting, he just gave up. He said, I can't do it. I'm just going to take a back seat on this issue. I'm no longer going to support the Morrison-Grady plan. And he sort of bowed out at that point and left it to the State Department. And for the next year and a half, you had a battle between the State Department and the Zionist movement and the pro-Zionists within Truman's own White House about what should happen and whether the United States should support the creation of a Jewish state. But he, he gives up at that point. It was a funny uh, line that he had when he gave up. This was at a cabinet meeting. He held up a a big sack of telegrams that he'd gotten protesting the Morris-Grady plan that was four inches thick. And he exclaimed, Jesus Christ couldn't please them when he was here on earth, so how could anyone expect that I would have any luck? Speaking again of the Zionist movement pressuring him. So at that point, he gave up. Another big figure in this very moment was George Marshall, father of the Marshall Plan, general of the army, a hugely important much-loved figure in the post-war, he had big doubts about a Jewish state too, did he not? Yes, and the State Department in general did, and there's some familiar figures there like Dean Rusk, who was at that point an assistant uh, secretary, uh, George Kennan, who was the head of policy planning, and Marshall, and they all had doubts about whether a Jewish state would provoke a conflict, a war. So for that reason alone, they wanted to prevent the creation of a Jewish state. And what they favored was something like a continuing United Nations trusteeship. You have to remember that the British controlled uh, Palestine, but they were being uh, threatened by the Haganah. The the, uh, Jewish army was uh, conducting a war against them in Palestine. So they announced in uh, early 1947 that they're pulling out. So the State Department's trying to think, well, what can we do to prevent the creation of this state, which will provoke uh, endless wars and threaten our connection to the uh, Arab oil and so on? And what they propose is that the United Nations should replace the British and there should be a trusteeship with the idea that eventually the Jews and Arabs will get along and create a kind of binational state. Sounds like a good idea to have some sort of great power oversight of a new nation with some handicaps built in, to have a monitor. Yeah, it was a good idea, but it was actually just folly because in order to do that, you would have had to have some kind of armed force there to uh, enforce the UN trusteeship. Both the Arabs and the Jews would be prepared to take arms against it. And Truman had said in in 1945 that he was not going to send troops to Palestine. That Mm. was repeated time and time again. You know, by 1947, the United States had demobilized. We we went from like 2.5 million to 400,000 people under arms. The State Department did an estimate at one point that we would need to have uh, 500,000 people in uh, Palestine to enforce uh, the peace. On the other hand, there was this kind of illusion that the uh, State Department had that somehow you could have this UN trusteeship and it would work without a tremendous armed force. 
And there was nobody else besides the United States who could have done that. Maybe the Soviet Union could have participated, but we didn't want that at any cost because that would give the Soviets an inroad into uh, Palestine. So there really wasn't any basis for a functioning UN trusteeship. And in the end, there wasn't an alternative to what actually happened that you could say was equally viable. Well, I wonder, it's clear from the beginning that the creation of Israel was absolutely founded on the great empires, Britain to start, and the United States ever since in the United Nations and in the current crisis. But where was the building in some restraint, some discipline, and some insistence on peace from the great powers? Well, there was great insistence, but you can insist all you want. Uh, No, but make it conditional. Make it built into the structure. It's not a freewheeling sovereign state until it gets its sea legs. It's under some sort of protectorate or discipline. Well, in order to establish a protectorate, you have to have a means of enforcing the protection. And we just did not have it. The British were out. They had to leave India. Their economy was in arrears. The French wouldn't go in unless the British did. The UN was a bunch of countries largely war-torn. They had no troops at that point. So there was no way to enforce it. There was no way to enforce partition. And there was no way to enforce a UN trusteeship and a a binational state. You have to realize both the Jews and the Arabs rejected the idea of a binational state. So you're looking at a war regardless. And that's what happens. John, two more names that I need to know more about. One is Chaim Weizmann, a scientist taught in Manchester, England, came from, was it Ukraine originally? But he is revered by, it seems, almost everybody to this day, although he may have made some bad guesses, but a heroic character. Explain his influence and just what he had in mind. He was a master diplomat. He was a chemist. He was a professor of chemistry. Right. He was the one who uh, convinced Arthur Balfour and the British to go along with the idea of the uh, Balfour Declaration. And he plays a key role in Zionist movement in Palestine, a kind of moderating role. His uh, motto was safe statesmanship. Safe statesmanship meant you don't talk about a state. You use various euphemisms like commonwealth. In Mm. other words, you don't provoke a conflict with the Arabs. You do whatever you can to avoid it, but you evolve into a majority over decades, and then you finally have the basis for a state. He also was the person who was instrumental in uh, convincing Truman at various times to uh, choose the path of Zionism rather than the path that the State Department was laying out. He would come to Washington, talk to Truman, and, you know, shazam, Truman would uh, change his mind. I mean, he was a great uh, diplomat. He had that Shazam influence on almost everybody. The other great name that I want to explain in this case was Louis Brandeis, the great Boston reformer and thinker on and off the Supreme Court, social democrat, a liberal. What was his vision of the new Jewish state? Well, uh, Brandeis is extraordinarily important in the American Zionist movement because he became a Zionist uh, relatively late in life, right before World War I. Before that, he'd been very skeptical about a Jewish state. And what he really did was, on the one hand, 
he convinced Americans that you could be a Zionist without getting into the problem of dual loyalty. His position was that America was a multinational country itself. It was a country of many nations and that it was perfectly natural for the nations within it to be loyal and to look to both the United States and whatever country they were from or whatever religion or whatever. So it was not a case of betrayal of Americanism for a Jew to be a Zionist. The second thing he did was you could be a Zionist without moving to Palestine. Again, that's what Ben-Gurion, Aaron Gordon, people like that said, well, if you're Jewish, you need to move to Palestine. But for Brandeis, you didn't have to. So you could have a functioning Zionist movement. And he became the head for a while before he became a Supreme Court justice of the uh, Zionist Organization of America, which until, uh, oh, I don't know, the 1950s or so was the main organization for American Jewry, and it is no longer. It's a very conservative, uh, along the lines of revisionism, uh, Hmm. close to the uh, Republican Jewish coalition. John Judas, I'd love to hear you imagine what several of those founders are thinking about their handiwork in the Middle East today, looking back. What has been lost? What has been fulfilled? Their misgivings then? their criticisms now. Who among those giants, and they were incredible figures, including Einstein and Hannah Arendt and Louis Brandeis, who among them would point to some fundamental flaws in their design? I mean, how did the origin story become the horror show of 2023? And critically then, how much of the damage can be undone? The main people who would say now, you should have listened to us, would have been the people that start with Ahad Ham, whose name was Asher Ginsburg, in Ukraine, and he becomes the mentor to Weizmann, a crucial figure, and also the main influence on Magnus and Hannah Arendt and Henrietta Zold, who's the head of Hadassah. Those people saw the uh, endless wars coming, And I think that they would again say, you know, you should have listened to us, but I don't know at what point they could have pulled it off uh, because there just wasn't any support. The British called the conflict between the uh, Jews and Arabs in 1937 irrepressible. Truman finally used the word insoluble. So (laughs) there you have. Do you think it's an insoluble problem to put two ancient people who've been living in each other's pockets for millennia into the same piece of land? Well, if they had been living together for millennia, if there had been, let's say, uh, you know, a 50-50 split in the 1890s between Jews and Muslims, you know, then I think they would have learned to live together. But you had a people who claimed ownership of the land dating back, you know, 2,000 years, and then you had another people who claimed ownership dating back 1,400 years, and the one was a very small minority, and the other, you know, was 95% of the people in Palestine. So it was a difficult situation to begin with. And, you know, and again, Zionism, in part a colonial movement, but in part, from the standpoint of the Jews, a national liberation movement. They had been oppressed for years because they were alien beings within a nation, within 
Russia, within Germany, and so on. So the obvious solution was to have a nation of their own. So you have these conflicting sentiments and frameworks within both that when you get the state of Israel in 1948, it's a recipe for war, but it's hard to see how it could have been avoided. Can you imagine Louis Brandeis saying, holy mackerel, how did I not see the Arabs? I believe in one man, one vote, but a truly people's democracy, and he did. How did we forget that? How did we not see it? Well, again, I think we didn't see it because Americans at the time, and I think this was true generally in the West, had a kind of imperial mindset when it came to looking upon Arabs or Africans or Asians. And I think that colored the way that they saw it. I think if you eliminate that now and they looked at what's happened, uh, it would be with a certain horror. Mm. Who got it right, in your view, anticipating the problems, but with a generous sense of the possibilities here, taking precautions, suggesting precautions. You mean looking over that that 130 years? Yeah. If you look from the standpoint of Zionism, I think Rabin is a crucial figure. As a military man and as a political man, you know, a warrior, somebody who was known to fiercely oppose the Arabs and fought them, comes around uh, after the first intifada in the late 1980s to the view that in order to have a Jewish state that is democratic, you have to have something like a two-state solution. And Oslo is the beginning of that, but it really gets destroyed. And it gets destroyed both by the opposition within Israel, Likud party, and also by the opposition among the Palestinians. Hamas starts also in the late 1980s, and they start the suicide bombings and the terrorism within the 1990s. And that's a major factor after Rabin is assassinated in bringing Netanyahu into power. And really by then, uh, the game is over. So yeah, I think Rabin is a historic figure. He's sort of the way people think about John F. Kennedy in the Vietnam War in uh, the United States states. We might be under great illusions there, but I think that that's about as close as you come to a time when it might have been resolved. May I say, I hear the logic of the two-state solution. It's very fashionable at the moment. I also think of the two-state solution in India, which meant carving up the Punjab, creating Muslim Pakistan alongside Hindu India. It had all been won under the Brits. They're now not only fierce enemies, they're both nuclear powers. I mean, that was a two-state solution, too, and it didn't work in the least. I mean, it had much more clearly the marks of a British hurried exit, not much planning or thinking, and yet it made its exit by leaving two states forever in conflict. You know, I could turn that around on you because by the same logic, the one-state solution there wouldn't have worked either. And you can see it now. And I'm not an expert on India, but Modi and the conflicts with the Muslims within India itself. I think in any case, you would have had uh, huge conflicts in that case. And uh, they haven't uh, had, had a nuclear war yet, thank God. And the Middle East has very few favorable precedents for something like a multinational or multiracial or multireligious state. I mean, in all the different states within the Middle East, one religion rules. So it's hard to imagine anything other than a two-state solution in the former Palestine being viable. 
By now, of course, the warriors have the habit of war and enmity, and that's tough to break, too. I just want to put in a plug for my friend I.F. Stone. I think I.F. Stone came as close as anybody to sort of defining the spirit of the mission. This goes way back from his early visits to Palestine, and he came away saying that the questions of partition and others duck the fundamental and inescapable question of the Middle East. For the Arabs, he wrote, the removal of the Jews would be a calamity. I'm convinced that the Jews have already contributed much and can in the future contribute even more toward the development of the Arab world. The Arabs are a great people with great potentialities. For the Jews, conversely, the basic problem here is to get along with the Arabs, to win them by helping them and by demonstrating a sincere desire to live together on an equal basis. This is a nobler and politically sounder goal than any narrow Jewish nationalism. I.F. Stone, late 1940s. I mean, fine, but it just wasn't going to work. There was a kind of irrepressible conflict that goes back to the, especially the 1930s, when you have the prospect of uh, many more Jewish immigrants coming from the Nazis, and you have a, a war going on between the Arabs and the British with the Jewish side, Zionist side on the side of the British, that lasts about five years and kills off a lot of the Arab leaders. Uh, Rashid Khalidi, the historian, uh, used the term envenomed. That from that point on, yeah. it was just very hard to imagine Jews and Arabs getting together. And if Ivestone went and talked to Magnus, uh, maybe he got convinced by him because within a very narrow circle of the intelligentsia within uh, Jerusalem, there was uh, some amity and talk going on. But I don't think that's true of, of the country as a, as a whole. Interesting. John Judas, I find it still puzzling that this sickening struggle is allowed to go on, all the more in the Gaza case, because it's so disfiguring, so alarming to people who are seeing it close up on Instagram every day. It's horrifying. Why does it go on? Is it the timidity of the greater powers, Britain back in the day, the U.S. today, or the United Nations, who have never taken up a forceful peacekeeping role, or is Palestine perhaps a problem without a solution? What does the historian say, looking forward? <laughs> it's all, all of the above. It's two people that have gone in a direction that where the antagonism has only grown rather than reduced. The uh, Hamas massacre on October 7th is just the latest event in a, a long string of terrorism on the one side and just completely disproportionate reprisals on the other side. You know, 1,400 dead versus 15,000. So it's, it's just gone on and on. And within Israel itself, the old labor Zionist tendency in politics, I would associate again with the possibility of a two-state solution, has really been superseded by parties like Likud and the religious parties that are based around, to a great extent, the immigrants from the Middle East who came into yes. uh, Israel after 1948 and who now make up a majority of Israelis and a majority of settlers in the West Bank and a majority 
in the right-wing parties. And they don't have the same view of what's going on as the original Jews from Europe. They don't see themselves as imperialists, colonialists, or mm. even if they have a national liberation, it's from the Arab countries themselves. So there's a kind of built-in antagonism there. And that's the force, again, for the idea of a greater Israel from the river to the sea, which would dominate the Palestinians. The Palestinians would either be forced out, which is an old idea, the idea of transfer, that they'd have to leave for, you know, Syria, Jordan, uh, Egypt, or they would be subjugated in some way and have to accept permanently as a second-class apartheid status. So mm. you have that on the one hand, and then you have the uh, supremacy of a group like Hamas among the Palestinians and a sclerotic uh, Palestinian authority with a guy who's 87 or 88 years old. I mean, if you think Biden has problems, Abbas has more problems. Mm. It's a very, very difficult situation right now. The only way conceivable that it could be resolved is by a major intervention on the part of uh, the United States, the European Union, and the Arab countries. The United States and EU pressuring Israel, the Arab countries, the Palestinians. And what that would involve if you wanted to have a two-state solution would be uh, a massive reversal of the settlements that have taken place since uh, 1967. And that's not going to happen without some kind of war. So you would really have to enforce that. And, you know, we're now in a well, we got a big war in the Ukraine, big rivalry with China. The United States does not want to send a lot of troops uh, to uh, Israel, and neither does the uh, EU country. So we're in a situation where it's hard to imagine a solution. I mean, you think of the Balkans, where we still have, what, it's like 25, 30 years now. There's still a, a force, a NATO outside force in the Balkans trying to enforce the peace. But it would be much more difficult in Israel and Palestine. But the problem is much more serious. It seems to me you make a good case for some combination of American, European, and Saudi or other big Arab rich states uh, saying, this house is on fire and we're all going to get burned. Let's, let's do something. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. And, you know, it, it was a bigger deal before the climate change crisis and before the United hmm. States uh, found all this natural gas and where, you know, Brzezinski in the late 1970s could say, well, we have a vital interest in the Middle East and any intervention there, any interference uh, uh, has to be stopped and we must desperately find peace there. I think that, again, there's less of an incentive now. Trump's strategy was basically to solve it by getting uh, an accord, a recognition between uh, Israel and the Arab states who had formerly been the major allies of the Palestinians. That strategy, which Biden continued, would have had the effect and was designed in Trump and Kushner's uh, mind to really sideline the Palestinians and make it absolutely impossible to have any kind of two-state solution. So again, I think we face a very difficult situation there, and I don't see a resolution in the near future. When you do see it, John, <laughs> call us up and we'll talk about it all over again. This is dispiriting in certain ways, but it's a thorough look back and into a lot of trouble ahead. John Judas, thank you. Yeah, it was my pleasure. 
John Judas wrote his Palestine history a decade ago and titled it Genesis, Truman, American Jews, and the Origins of the Arab-Israeli Conflict, still available on Amazon. And finally, a quick pitch for open source. We're an independent podcast, meaning we count on listeners to sustain our work. If you haven't done so yet, please think of making a contribution. We've made it easy. You can become a paid subscriber to our Substack newsletter or join our Patreon community. For details, just visit radioopensource.org slash donate. If this first and still longest running podcast out there is important to you, please help us keep it going. Thank you. Please help us keep it going. Thank you.